The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. By providing a unprecedentedly large role for Bannon, uh, who was really a political operative, he, he would seem to be also trying to ensure that he's going to get the recommendations that he likes. President Donald Trump ruffled feathers when he appointed chief strategist and far-right media mogul Stephen Bannon to the National Security Council, tackling the implications of that move and a brief history of how the council came to be on this week's War College. You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. With us today is American historian, professor emeritus at Boston University, and former U.S. Army Colonel Andrew Basevich. Mr. Basevich is here today to talk to us about the National Security Council. So at the end of January, President Donald Trump shuffled the NSC, elevating strategist Steve Bannon and effectively demoting the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Director of National Intelligence. Observers criticize the move, but what exactly is the National Security Council and why is it important? Are the changes as disastrous as some claim or just par for the course in a White House that promised dramatic change? Mr. Basevich is here to answer some of those questions and help us cut through the noise. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. So what exactly is the National Security Council? Can you give us some background on it? Well, the term is actually misused. The National Security Council was created in 1947 by a piece of legislation, and the National Security Council is a committee of senior U.S. officials assigned statutory responsibility to advise the President of the United States on matters related to national security. That committee consists of Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, uh, the Secretary of Treasury. I believe there are one or two more statutory members. The National Security Council first came to prominence under President Eisenhower in the 1950s. Eisenhower was a military man. He believed in staff work. He believed in consultation. He met regularly with that committee of principals, Eisenhower himself, Uh, to solicit their advice on matters of basic policy. If I'm not mistaken, Eisenhower also created the post of National Security Advisor. But at that time, the National Security Advisor was something something more like uh, an administrative secretary to the council, had no real clout. It was not until President Kennedy became president in 1961 that the National Security Advisor became an important post. Kennedy uh, appointed McGeorge Bundy uh, to the position. Bundy continued to serve in that position after Kennedy's assassination. And Bundy uh, became something more than symphony administrator. He became somebody who wielded real power. And since Bundy's day, the post of National Security Advisor, again, that's not really part of the National Security Council, has been an exceedingly important figure. Now, Beginning in the 1970s, the National Security Advisors staff began to grow 
if I'm not mistaken, that staff now consists of something on the order of 400 different officials who work for the National Security Advisor and by extension help provide advice to the president and to the National Security Council. Why has this staff come to be so big and so important? The answer, I think, is that presidents beginning roughly with uh, President Kennedy have sought to concentrate control over all matters of national security uh, in the White House. And so the National Security Council staff has become, in essence, an alternative cabinet department that, in a sense, combines some of the functions of both the State Department and the Defense Department. All right. So where do the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Director of National Intelligence fit into this? Like what what exactly is their role on the National Security Council? The founding legislation back in the 1940s at the beginning of the Cold War designated the Joint Chiefs of Staff collectively as the senior military advisors to the president. And as such, the the Joint Chiefs collectively played an important role in all matters related to uh, national security. They were not statutory members of the National Security Council, but they were were present with some frequency, and certainly no major decisions occurred without the chiefs weighing in, and for the most part, with the chiefs having something close to a veto power. In the 1980s, as a result of a piece of legislation called the Goldwater-Nichols Act, Rather than the Joint Chiefs collectively, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was designated by law as the sole senior military advisor to the president and by extension to the secretary of defense. The idea was let's do away with the committee approach to soliciting military advice. Let's empower uh, one particular individual to be the source of, of military advice. The first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who really wielded the kind of clout envisioned in the Goldwater-Nichols Act was Colin Powell, uh, back when he was uh, JCS chairman in the late 1980s and and early 1990s. So what is significant about the changes that Trump has announced on that particular point is that it suggests that Trump wishes to marginalize the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and in that sense, to marginalize the military itself as a source of advice. Now, whether that's his actual intention or not remains to be seen, but that appears to be the rationale. Right. Let's dig into the the memorandum that he that shuffled things a little bit. So it we, we call the the moving of the Joint Chiefs and the DNI a demotion, but really it's there's a principal committee for the NSC and they've been removed from it. Is that correct or am I or am I wrong? It's it's my impression, and I'm not 100% certain about this, that whereas the National Security Council in the days of Eisenhower involved formal, regularly scheduled meetings of those principals, with the president sitting at the head of the table and asking the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Treasury, their views on a particular issue, that over time, such formal meetings of the entire National Security Council have become relatively infrequent. Instead, what has evolved is a complex process of staffing decisions and papers so that there are committees subordinate to the National Security Council that include representatives 
from state, from defense, from the military itself, from other agencies that meet to consider issues, consider papers, make recommendations that then float up to the national security advisor and to the president for a final decision. So things have become much more elaborate since the days of of, of, of Eisenhower. And, and I think that the complaint that is sometimes made about this far more elaborate procedure is that it's, it's time consuming, that it, it's difficult to get this apparatus to yield a decision in a in a in a timely way. It could be that one of the things that uh, Trump is attempting to do, he does seem to be somebody who is impatient with process, could be that he's trying to cut through some of this bureaucratic paraphernalia uh, so that decisions or recommendations, I should say, come to him more quickly. And of course, by providing a unprecedentedly large role for Bannon, uh, who was really a political operative, he, he would seem to be also trying to ensure that he's going to get the recommendations uh, that he likes. Hey, sleepyhead, why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Well, let's let's talk about Bannon then a little bit, because this seems to be the, the, the piece of this news that is scaring people. Is there a precedent for a political operative, as you called him, being on the NSC? And how do you think that will change the change the room? Well, from what I've read, the answer is yes, there's a precedent. And, 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 and that, for example, Karl Rove uh, sat in on some meetings uh, that were related to security issues. But uh, as I understand it, it was sort of sitting against the back wall and listening rather than at the table and actual being directly involved in the discussions. Why is the Bannon appointment significant? And quite apart from you know, what you think of Bannon's worldview or mindset, he is a political advisor, a political operative. And at least in theory, maybe only in theory, national security decisions are supposed to be made apart from political or, or partisan considerations, at least theoretically, uh, when the National Security Council convenes or when the National Security Advisor comes into the Oval Office and says, Mr. President, here's what we think you should do, at least theoretically, that is being driven by considerations of the national interest, not about what's going to benefit a particular party or, or advance a president's uh, uh, political fortunes. Now, I think all of us understand that politics are never excluded from any kind of decision making. But Bannon's appointment to to be part of the principles committee is is an overt rejection of of that notion of of national security decisions being uh, apolitical. And do we have any sense, just based on what you've read and what you know, how Bannon might use the military for political purposes? Well, I mean, if we take uh, seriously, and I, I guess we should take seriously 
some of his comments about Islam in particular, it would seem that uh, he uh, you know, buys into this paradigm of a clash of civilizations between uh, the Islamic world and the West. I think uh, Bannon likes to use terms like Judeo-Christianity. And to the extent that that conviction informs his position and to the extent that his position ends up carrying weight in the making of national security decisions, then the relatively small, albeit not insignificant war uh, that we have been engaged in in the greater Middle East for many years now could well become much, much bigger. What other parts of this memo are unusual to you? Does anything else strike you as, as strange? I don't think so. I mean, the two the two things that struck me were the apparent marginalization of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the insertion of a political advisor smack dab into the middle of national security decision making. You touched before on the idea that a lot of this may be just to help cut through the bureaucratic mess and make decisions happen more quickly. And I'm wondering if there's ever been a time where in the past, the bureaucracy has hampered military decisions and slowed things down and made us make mistakes. Well, I think there's no question that there have been times where the bureaucracy has slowed things down. Whether or not that resulted in mistakes might depend on one's you know, point of view. But if we recall the era of Bill Clinton, for example, and, and Clinton's own relations with the military, particularly in the first part of his first term were, were very, very uh, rocky. But the military, quite clearly, I think, attempted to obstruct Clinton's inclination to intervene in, in Bosnia. In the wake of the Somalia debacle, the famous Mogadishu firefight of October 1993, when the Rwanda genocide broke out, the military clearly inhibited the inclination on the part of the Clinton administration to mount some kind of a military operation to put an end to the genocide there. So so there's no question uh, that the military can uh, put, a, I should say, has in the past uh, put a break on an administration's inclination to uh, intervene. It doesn't mean that it always will prevail in that regard, but it has some considerable clout. Can you expand on that a little bit? I'm wondering what exact what mechanisms they used to slow things down. Well, one mechanism would be to leak, leak their disapproval, leak projections of, of complications, testify before Congress in ways that uh, raise questions about an administrative administration's intentions. You know, I, I think these are par for the course. Uh, this is the way politics gets played in, in Washington. There's a little bit of an illusion, I think, that our system of civil military relations uh, is such that, you know, presidents give orders and the generals salute and say, uh, yes, sir, we'll take care of it. Uh, I think the, the reality is that the interaction between the civilian leadership and the military leadership is far more complicated and can be very uh, contentious. Uh, another example that just came to mind, you'll recall that in the run-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, there was some considerable amount of foot-dragging on the part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as that war appeared on the horizon. 
Rumsfeld, uh, then the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, tried to solve that problem by circumventing the chief of staff, the joint chiefs of staff, marginalizing them in the process of war planning and dealing directly with General Tommy Franks, the commander of Central Command, who Rumsfeld believed and believed correctly that that he could control. Well, the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, bit back. Famously, when Army Chief of Staff General Eric Shinseki appeared before a Senate committee and testified as to his professional military opinion that occupying Iraq would require several hundred thousands of soldiers. Well, the war plan that the Bush administration had put together did not foresee sending several hundred thousand soldiers to Iraq. Indeed, it was predicated on being able to invade the country and overthrow the Saddam Hussein regime with a fairly small force. So when Shinseki went public uh, with this dissent, he was immediately slapped down uh, by Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, by 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 Rumsfeld himself, and and in many respects, Shinseki was humiliated, and and pretty clearly was humiliated because the civilian leadership was intent on demonstrating that it would not put up with what it viewed as uh, military obstructionism. Now in that case. Shinseki, in retrospect, we would say, was clearly correct in his estimation. Do you see them as a a counterbalance? Uh, be, be, it feels like, as I, as we're reading and we learn more every day, that Trump is in, is battling his own intelligence community. I think demoting the DNI is part of that, and like you, as you said, they use leaks and other methods to kind of rein him in, and it feels as if the the military and the intelligence community are beginning to act as a check on executive power. Do you think that's true, or am I completely off base? I mean, it's too soon to tell, uh, but I, I think that it's quite plausible. My own hope, if not expectation, is that President Trump, Trump is going to find that he's facing all sorts of constraints, some domestic, some foreign, uh, that together will... Uh, limit the mischief uh, that his administration might otherwise perpetrate. And I think that one of those constraints is likely to be the military itself. And in that regard, Mattis could well end up being a positive force. But again, really going to have to see how all these matters shake out. All right, I've got one more question for you, and it's pure speculation. Observing all of this, you've long been a critic of U.S. military policy, especially in the the Middle East. How worried are you, especially looking at someone like Steve Bannon now sitting on the National Security Council? We're not even a month into uh, Trump's presidency. And of course, it's been a a roller coaster month uh, in all kinds of ways, not least of all the fact that uh, Flynn has already imploded and been fired. But one of the things that you have to appreciate is that actually this administration has not faced a significant crisis yet. You know, the the North Korean missile test uh, is is small beer in that regard. And I do worry, uh, should something major erupt now or in the near future, when clearly the administration hasn't even organized itself 
to to make a serious decision. I worry that in that interval, somebody like Bannon could essentially hijack the process. And with access to a president who is impulsive, who knows remarkably little, could persuade that president to do something that would be really, really uh, stupid. One would hope that over time, when offices in the administration are filled, when procedures are put in place, that the likelihood of that kind of an event occurring would diminish. But right now, I think it is a concern. And and for that reason, we need to hope and pray that there will be no major crisis uh, that confronts this administration, at least for uh, some interval of time. But there always is. Something always comes up. Presidents are always tested. Oh, no, there will there will be major crises. I mean, you, you are correct. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just wishing and hoping that uh, they won't uh, occur for for a little while yet. Andrew Basevich, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking to us about the National Security Council and laying it all out for us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this week's show. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Haddock. Matthew Galt hosts and wrangles the guests, and it's produced by me, Bethel Hobday. Please keep your iTunes reviews coming. If you say something nice and clever, I just might read it on air. Please post any ideas for future shows or feedback you have to our Twitter page. We're at war underscore college. Thanks. Thanks.